Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Hello everyone, I'm Ed Gotham and welcome to Opto Sessions where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world and covering their secrets to success. This week I've got Peter Brandt on the show, a renowned trader and founder of the Factor LLC, which is a proprietary trading firm. He's also a prominent author in the space uh, with two highly thought of publications including Diary of a Professional Commodity Trader. We talk through classical chart patterns, one of his specialties, why you should stop being obsessed with catching tops and bottoms, and finish by analysing the long-term prospects in silver. I enjoyed this one, so I hope you do too. Thanks. Hello, Peter. Uh, great to have you on the show. How's it, how's it going where you are at the moment? Oh, it's, it's good, Ed. Thanks for asking. I'm in Minnesota now. We'll be in Arizona here soon for, uh, for the wintertime, but uh, all, all is good here. Of course, we have we have the same things going on here as you do in, in England. We've got this crazy uh, coronavirus, and we're all having very different lives here in the year 2020 because of it. But uh, you know, we're hanging in there and trying to stay safe and, and, and endure. Yeah, that's definitely, definitely an interesting year for everyone globally. Um, I just wanted to start by just asking about, uh, you're obviously known for your classical charting uh, techniques. Um, and I wanted to ask what you think is different about your approach uh, that gives you sort of superior insight, you know, specifically on the charting techniques sort of end. Yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that the word superior insight uh, actually fits, you know, who I am and what I do, but I appreciate the compliment. Uh, you know, I'm a classical chartist. I stumbled into it uh, when I started trading in the 1970s, my goal was to trade for myself, to do it uh, uh, as a living uh, market speculator. I set out to do that and promptly wiped out two or three accounts pretty quickly uh, in the process of learning. It's a steep learning curve, but mm. I stumbled on the charting. And it just so happened that it fit me. I'm, you know, I'm, vi I'm, I'm visually oriented. I, I, you know, talk to me about a market narrative that gets into uh, a complicated uh, scenario, and I'm lost. I'm, you know, I'm a blind mouse. Uh, also, I'm not real numeric. I'm not real computerized approach to market speculation. It really doesn't fit uh, who I am. It doesn't fit my personality and how I think. But uh, when I uh, stumbled onto classical charting and that. Uh, that, by the way, is charting that goes back into the 1930s, in 1933 to be exact, when uh, a man by the name of Richard W. Schaubacher uh, wrote uh, a book about uh, uh, classical charting and stock market profits. Uh, that is, uh, that's when it all began. And so when I read his work and some of the works of people who came after him, it instantly uh, connected with me is this is an interesting way to look at at, at markets is an interesting way to 
uh, to take a look at what's going on in any given market. And the, the reason for me was that you know, embedded in the charts, in, in the classical charting, is really a couple of things that I needed to have to really dig in and begin a career as a trader. I mean, that it, it gave me a sense of where mar a market has been. It, it gave me uh, an idea of the past, uh, path of least resistance. Uh, it, it gave me a mechanism for determining the timing of trades, when I get in, where I get in. And I think more importantly, it, it defined for me where my risks were. And so those are all of the things that for me, I find to be very, very valuable in trading based on classical chart patterns. Uh, it, it's just a synergy of things that come together that for me really was not offered by other approaches to market speculation. But, you know, as I say that, I, I really want to emphasize that charting is probably not for everybody, it, it, but it is for people who think in a certain way, uh, who want to make a sense of markets and have some sense of the order of markets uh, based on some uh, graphical feeling of, uh, about where markets is, people that are very visual, I, th I think classical charting is probably something that they really need to examine. Yeah, no, that's, that, was, that was interesting. I can completely agree about the visual. I think I'm, I'm definitely towards that end as well. Um, visualizing it gives you just a better understanding in many ways of, of at least for me, and, you know, of where the price action and where it's going. Is it, when, we, when we talk about classical charting techniques, uh, are you talking about um, just patterns like, or, such as, well, are we talking about trend lines, support resistance? Well, yeah, I mean, those, those are all part of Schaubacher's book and Richard W. Schaubacher really was the man who, who, who I think uh, put it all together, described it, named it, named the, the, the parts of it. Uh, actually, he's not as well known as uh, uh, John McGee and Robert Edwards, who came along in 1948 with uh, technical analysis and stock trends. Um, they're probably more well known, but that's exactly right, Ed. It, it's support, resistance, trend lines, head and shoulders, rectangles, symmetrical triangles, gaps, uh, all of those types of things that can def be defined uh, that take place on price graphs. That 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 in, that's the essence of classical charting. And you're basing everything, such as your entry, like profit targets, etc., is all based on the charting techniques, and and it, it's all around that everything to. Yeah, I I think over time I've you know I've become just tiny in a tiny bit multidisciplinary and. But in a very tiny bit, uh, I mean, in the main, uh, the, the charts dictate my trading. There may be other things that come into it. Uh, I am, by the way, not a person who really pays attention to Fibonacci ratios or, uh, or GAN or Elliott Wave or, you know, moon cycles or all of those types of things. I mean, I'm, I'm just a pattern guy. Uh, and, you know, and I, I just, I'm not an indicator person either. I don't look at uh, stochastics or uh, I, I will use moving averages in my trading and I use a moving, a sim just a simple moving average. 
as really uh, uh, my proxy for trend. Uh, you, you know, it's important to try to trade with the trend, however that is defined, and it's defined differently for different traders. But for me, I, I, I'm very conscious of just a simple moving average, which for me would be an 18-day or an 18-week moving average. And that, for me, serves as my proxy for which way the market's going. And I, you know, I try to trade in, uh, in, in a way that's consistent with that. That's, uh, uh, and, and so I will use that. That's the only other indicator I will use. But I'll look at things like seasonals. I look at sentiment. I mean, I, I, I look at commitment to traders. I, I love a market set up when the spec, uh, large specs are all uh, extremely long or short and the commercials are on the other side of the trade and I get a, a, a chart configuration that indicates that it's time for the commercials to be right. I mean, I, I, I love that kind of setup. So I'll bring some of those things in into my calculus uh, from time to time. But I, I would say um, in the main, day in and day out, uh, I, I look for, for certain chart patterns. I don't always try to determine everything that's taking place in a market. Uh, I may only trade an individual market two or three, uh, maybe if I'm real active, four times in an entire year. Uh, and so I'm very particular upon which chart patterns for me really qualify as, as events for which I want to take risk. And, but I think, that, you know, that's taken me 45 years to kind of, you know, to, to, to be where I am in, in those terms. And you picked up on something there that was quite interesting on, about market sentiment uh, and that sort of divergence um, you're seeing between what retail and commercial uh, points of view. How, how are you monitoring that specifically? Well, yeah, it's a good question. And in some cases you can't. I mean, but in the case of futures, and I am a futures trader, I'm futures and forex trading trader, but in terms of forex, at least currencies against the dollar, uh, and in terms of U.S.-based futures, the uh, Commodity Futures Trading Commission each Friday releases commitments of traders. Uh, traders that uh, commercials always report their positions to the CFTC, as do reportable specs, large specs. And so uh, each Friday, the, the CFTC releases the commitment of traders, and so we can take a look at the open interest in any given market and determine uh, uh, what's it comprised of, uh, what are commercial traders doing, what are large specs doing, what are, uh, what are small specs doing. Uh, once we get outside the U.S. and outside the U.S. dollar uh, slash major currencies, you know, then it's a little bit more difficult. But Sometimes you just get a sense, uh, really, on social media. I follow social media uh, because it's a great way to kind of get the flow for uh, where retail traders are and what they're getting excited about. So, um, yeah, but for U.S. markets, it's much easier to get a handle on. And you've obviously had a really long um, career in trading. Did you, I think you mentioned 45 years. Um, and that, am I right in saying that started in the commodities 
exchange a long time ago? Well, yeah, it started, it started at Chicago Board of Trade in 1975. I had traded a little bit prior to that as just uh, somebody who was doing something completely different in life. But then in 75, it was uh, uh, Board of Trade, joined the Board of Trade. And so, yeah, I, um, I, guess, I guess I'm a dinosaur. And, you know, I, I keep doing my dinosaur thing because, I, you know, I, I love the markets. I love trading. It, it's an exciting thing to do. It's, I don't garden and I don't play golf. And I don't collect stamps. And so... You know, somebody my age, you know, we got to find something to do. And for me, trading is, a, is central to kind of what I do during my waking hours. And you actually mentioned something on your Twitter feed today or yesterday about the Pareto principle. I was very interested to know um, if you could look back on your career, um, and I don't know how easy this will, will be to answer, like, but is there any memorable lessons that you have that, you know, that... Uh, taught you that 80% of, of the sort of uh, your edge that you have to, today? Well, yeah, I, I mean, uh, I, I probably unpacked that question uh, a, a little bit differently. Um, you know, I, I would probably say as I look back on my career, uh, it, it, it's that awareness that really in all endeavors in life, uh, Vilfredo Pareto rules, right? Um, I mean, 80% of outcomes are achieved with 20% of the events. And that's true in just about any area of life that you look at it. Uh, you know, 80%, and it's probably for me, it's a little closer to 90%. So I can look back and I know, um, I know exactly what I have pulled out of the markets as a trader. And uh, I, I know for certain that that amount is equal to about uh, you know, 12 to 13% of the trading events I've been involved in. And so that's very consistent with, uh, with the Pareto principle. And uh, I, I think you look around in any endeavor of, of life, you know, 80% of uh, astronomers produce 20, you know, or 20% of astronomers produce 80% of the real successful uh, discoveries. It, it, you look throughout life, that's true. And so I think it's, it's that sense that I've gained that that's clarified in my mind. And it's really, uh, it's really embedded itself in the way I think uh, it, it, it's, what it what it tells me is uh, if if I could roll it back and know that at the uh, at the very start, uh, I I think I would have become much more aggressive uh, on selective events. I would have it would have resulted in a trading approach that that's more selective in terms of selecting trades and slightly more aggressive in terms of what I do with those trades. Uh, at least it's true for me right now. I mean, I've, I've, I've sized down. I mean, early on, I took huge risks, but uh, I think I would have maintained uh, a, a slightly more refined approach to trading really uh, not, you can't look for Pareto trades because even if you look for Pareto trades, you'll still be governed by the Pareto influence, right? I mean, you can say, okay, I'm not interested in just trades for trade sakes. 
I'm really interested in, in, in the cream of the crop. I'm, lo I'm, I'm looking for the blue ribbon trades. But even if you do that and you set out and say, okay, I'm going to become more selective and only choose the big ones, at, at the end of the day, Pareto will still govern. Um, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It's hard to know which ones are the winners. It, yeah. It's hard to know which ones are the winners. And, and for me, I think that's one lesson I've learned is uh, I'm not sure that my expectations for trades uh, has been exactly directly correlated with, with outcomes. I, I mean, some of my best trades have been trades that I might not have expected much on. And uh, there's a lot of trades that I was, had very, very high expectations for that I really felt I was right. Uh, I really felt everything, the stars were aligned for things to happen. And th they were big disappointments. And uh, so I think that uh, for me, I, I, early in my career, I think the 80% of trades that really didn't do much for me, I spent too much time thinking about them. Uh, they, they dragged me down. I, you know, I, I sat and ruminated upon the 80% of the trades that were inevitable. I mean, they were part of trading. Uh, as I as I perhaps took uh, my trades too personal, I per you know, markets markets don't know I exist. You know, uh, you know, markets don't take me personally. Why should I take my losses personally? So I think it's just a psychology of trading that I've come to accept that probably would have helped me early on. But I think it's also an understanding of markets that a trader only come, comes to uh, through hard knocks. I, I mean, through the process of evolution, you don't start out with wisdom as a trader. I, I think wisdom is gained, uh, and wisdom for different people may look slightly different, but uh, an understanding of the process of market speculation is, it is not is not something that somebody starts with. It's something that somebody develops over time, and so it's being willing to 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 hear the lessons. It's not going in with a with a preset narrative upon what trading is all about, but being willing to have the process of trading be be a teacher. How do you go about detaching yourself? from the market so you, you don't take it so personally? Because, I mean, that's a very, very common uh, thing that is the cause of many mistakes. Um, have you got any sort yeah. of things that have worked for you over the years? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's, that's a great question. Uh, and, and, you know, and it's probably my answer for that is probably different than uh, the other folks that, you know, my friend Jack Schwager has found from, the the whole big variety of of traders that he's interviewed over the years for the market wizard series and he's interviewed the best of the best i don't necessarily include myself in that group but for me it's i think it's it's uh it's really a couple things first i need to constantly be on top of the metrics of my trading because the metrics scream pareto and so I always have to be constantly aware of the fact that the Pareto principle has, is, and will continue to, to dictate outcomes. And so 
my goal is just to try to be disciplined and enjoy the 15% of trades that will produce my bottom line. And, and, uh, it, and, and part of that is, is being able to track uh, in real time, uh, l l let's say using the past, at any point the past 12 months, uh, what percent of my trades have produced the bottom line. So it's a constant, I'm constantly aware of it. It's not something I learned 20 years ago and I rely on the learning. It's something that I want to see and continue to see as it takes place uh, because I have to be reminded. I mean, part, you know, part of the, uh, really the doctrine of trading uh, is, I think, something that traders need to be preaching to themselves all of the time. Uh, they constantly need to be reminding themselves of of some of the big chunks of reality that will dictate trading. So that's one thing. The other thing is I just try to ignore markets during the day and you know think of myself not so much as a trader based on what I see on the screen, but see myself as a trader who puts in orders at the end of the day and tries to ignore markets during the day. And so. That's my job. My my job is to enter orders that make sense based on the charts and not to be drawn into the story of blinking prices. Uh, I, I think it's a big danger, a huge danger. Yeah, it's it's a con game, really. Um, and you know, you see pictures of guys with you know eight screens in front of them. And they're sitting there glued, and you know they're they talk about trading in the middle of the night, and they're constantly being uh, being aware of things, and you know looking at all the markets and all the time frames. Frankly, there are some people who, uh, and I know some, who can be successful trading that way. But uh, I, I just remember uh, I remember something that that uh, Jack Schwager told me once about the many interviews he's done with with traders and that is when he goes to their office to interview them you know i think some people would expect they're going to walk in and people are uh there's a room full of people screaming orders and getting excited and jumping up and down and it's a noisy place and jack said no it's actually more like an actuarial office at an insurance company you know, it's, it's, it's calm, it's peaceful, and it's orderly. And it, it's not what he would expect from, you know, the, the trading rooms of some of the big trading operations in the world. Uh, it, you know, it'll, I think, surprise people that, you know, it's, it's, it's rather orderly. And I, I think, you know, for me, that's important. I need to stay grounded. You know, I need to stay centered. I, I, I need to prevent myself from getting excited about really good trades. And I need to prevent myself from getting down upon a, a string of, of bad trades. Um, you, you know, I, I need to guard my emotions. Uh, people talk about drawdowns in trading, that they have capital drawdowns. They're down. 20% or they're down 30% or whatever the case may be. And there is, there are capital drawdowns and they can be defined in terms of depth and they can be defined in terms of length. But there's also emotional drawdowns. A trader needs to guard his emotions. He needs to guard his heart. Um, and it's just as important. And in some ways, a big emotional drawdown 
can be more severe and take a longer period of time to climb out of than necessarily a couple months of getting hit hard on bad positions. That's very interesting. That's something actually that's not not often brought up. That's um, obviously yeah, the mental uh, nature of trading can, can take its toll, and um, coming back from that can take time. And you question your ability, etc. As well. Um, so you're the founder of the of, of the Factor Report, which um, and Factor, as you describe it, it has four main or major themes, classical charting principles, risk management, trading as a business, and uh, trading psychology. On the risk management side, which is one of the four pillars, um, you mentioned uh, what a trader does with a trade is more important than what trades are selected. Uh, are you able to describe a bit of that, uh, that sort of principle in more detail? Yeah, I mean... Uh, as I look at it, in my own opinion, you know, 80% of people that come in and think trading might be fun or a profitable venture for them and take their hand at it, whether it's stocks or options or futures or whatever the case may be, you know, 80% of these people spend 80% of their time and their energy and their money to try to discover the magic way of selecting trades. Where, uh, quite frankly, I, I think that's that's a minor component to uh, the the calculus that uh, that determines success. It, it's I don't want to say it's unimportant because the reality is that you got to have a way to determine what you're going to trade and when. I mean, everybody has to find that. I mean, everybody's got to discover what a trade is for them. Uh, and, and but what I'm saying is that given that uh, I, I decide to buy soybeans today or uh, sell the Nasdaq or whatever the case may be, that that's not going to be the determinant of how I do at the end of the year. Uh, I mean, there's going to be other uh, components that are going to have to come into play, uh, and trade selection is going to become a minor influence of, buy, of bottom line over time. And so it's how you manage the trades you put on. What do you do with the trades you put on? Uh, how, how do you size them? Uh, how do you time them? How do you, uh, how, how do you get out if you're wrong? How do you determine if you're wrong? Uh, uh, how do you get out if you're right? Where do you get out if you're right? When do you get out if you're right? How, uh, how are you patient and disciplined relative to what you want to have happen. How, how does, what does that look like? And those are the things I think that really in the final analysis are, are the things that, that really we talk about a trader's edge, right? That a trader has to have an edge uh, and then exploit that edge. But my experience is trade selection, the front end of a trade, right? That That is really not where the edge comes from yet that's where 80 percent of people spend 80 percent of their time and attention and emphasis to find the front end of a trade um and uh and, and i think that uh, that's that's really what i mean by trade selection being relatively unimportant and in terms of um sizing and uh stop positioning 
have you got a, a sort of approach you take to that you could you could share with us just interested to know how you approach that sort of element of risk management yeah i mean i mean i think that's 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 been refined over time i, I mean i think early on in in my trading career i'm lucky i didn't i wasn't carried out on a stretcher <laughs> um and, and i i could have easily that could have easily happened i mean it scares me when i think about some of the sizes i took early on in trades and how um how fortunate i was that uh you know that that it that it didn't end my 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 trading career, but I I try to limit the risk on any given trade that I take to a maximum of one percent of my of my nominal capital, and you know nominal capital is kind of what I have in my head as the the total amount that I want to be trading with, um, and so I have my total nominal capital figure in my mind. And when I put on a trade, let's say I want to buy uh, the euro currency and sell the British pound, which, by the way, is a trade I'm interested in doing, uh, say that that's a trade I, I want to put on, I'll go in and say that I'm willing to risk you know, no more than 1% of my capital on a trade. In reality, it's less than that. In reality, it's probably closer to one half of one percent or six tenths of one percent of my capital so thinking of a different way let, let's assume for, for a hypothetical case i have an account value of nominal account value of a million dollars that's not the, the amount of the, you know it's a round number what that means is that i don't want to risk any more than uh six thousand four to six thousand dollars on any given trade so if i I buy the euro, sell the pound, which is really where my head is. I'm not in the trade, but it's what I want to do. Uh, when I pull the trigger on that, I'm probably going to risk about $6,000 per million of nominal capital. And, and so that's what I determine. And when I pick my spot and how I enter that trade, uh, you know that will that will determine. So the calculus that comes in to play is as charts develop and evolve and form and become clear and attempt to cl become clear. Uh, there'll be a point at which I'll say, based on the charts, it's time for me to do the trade. And uh, simultaneous with that, I determine. Here's where I'm going to do the trade. Here's the level at which um, I'll say I'm going to I'm I'm going to throw in the towel and say I'm wrong, and then it's just a matter of pulling out a spreadsheet to determine what my sizing would be, um, and uh, it, and it just simply becomes a calculation of size. And so that's uh, when I enter a trade, that, that, that's kind of how I go about entering a trade. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. I'm interested to know about um, when you're in a trade. Um, I, I believe I've... I've uh, read that you only really focus on reducing position size once it so managing yourself out when you're in a trade um there's a famous uh saying from soros uh the way to build 
superior long-term returns is through preservation of capital and home runs. What are your thoughts on the home run element there and how it relates to, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm there. I mean, I think that, you know, that's consistent with the Pareto principle is you're, you're, those are the big trades. You're looking for big trades. How do you make sure the big trades have enough size on them? That's a challenge. Yeah. I, I mean, here's the reality, Ed, and I think this will, this will connect with, uh, this, this will connect with your audience. I think it'll connect with anybody, including some of the people you just mentioned. You know, when you're right, you're never big enough. And when you're wrong, it always feels like you're too big, right? I mean, uh, and it's, it's so it's those that you look back at a trade and say, wow, that was easy. I mean, that never let me sweat. And uh, whatever concerns I had about the trade were, were probably illegitimate. The market, it was my own head that gave me the doubts, not the behavior of the market. And it's those trades that then become your big trades. Uh, you need those, and those are your home runs. And again, it comes back to, you know, that 10, 15% of the trades you do, which really become uh, your home run trades, uh, you know, and the rest are just junk. Uh, I, I refer to them with staff as junk, their junk pile, throw that one on the junk pile. You know, that, that, that's a trade that ends up in the scrap heap. Uh, and, and most trades end up in the scrap heap and you just gotta be, uh, you know, you just gotta be hoping that when you get something that, that really works for you, um, and I've got something right now and it's in us grains, I'm not long enough. Um, and uh, it's going to be a big trade, but it, the reality is probably not going to be a home run. It might be a double or a triple using American baseball as a, as a point of comparison because I didn't put enough on. I, I mean, I may from time to time over the long term, but I do not add because I have open, unrealized profits. I, I mean, some people go, wow, I've got uh, I'm long corn and it's, I've got 20 cents on the trade, therefore I'm going to buy more. I'm going to pyramid based on my profits. I, I find that to be a pretty foolish way to trade, frankly, although I know some rare people who do very well doing that. Um, and there are some traders who really know how to pyramid, but pyramiding is uh, a tremendously uh, complicated uh, thing to do um, and I don't recommend it for the faint of heart and don't rec recommend it for the novice but personally I do not uh, generally speaking my biggest trade is is when I get into the position and from there on out I, I'm, I'm more likely than not to uh, to, to lighten my position and by taking some off selectively and in order to get those home runs, are you going for um, the all all trades? Are you going for like a really really quite big risk reward ratio, so that you have the potential, you know, to have those home? Yeah, not really. I mean, I, I hear people talking about, well, you know, I'll only take a trade if it's a four to one risk reward ratio or a three to one risk reward ratio. Quite frankly, that is not a figure that 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 comes into our calculus. Uh, in, instead, I tend to be more interested in rather than 
you know, the probability of either making $4 and losing one. I, I tend to be more conscious of the fact is there a high probability that early on in the trade, I can move, I can be at least break even. Yeah. And, you know, if I feel like that's the case, I, I don't care if the trade's a one-to-one or a two-to-one or a four-to-one. If I feel that the nature of a particular market, how it sets up, the charts it's putting in, the nature of the market, how it's trading, is I can get into this trade and I can very quickly become defensive with the trade. Wow. I, I mean, that for me is, is a much preferable position okay. because at least gives me a chance to have a trade run uh, and, and, and not you know, not, not do damage if it doesn't. So, um, although in reality, I would probably say that the trades that are, are home run trades. And for me, by the way, it's, it's important to define what that means. I mean, I, that, that ed is going to be different for different people. And I, I think that's something that people, when they come into the business of market speculation, they need to define what a home run is for them. Uh, I mean, they they need to they need to dream about that and ponder that and think about that. Is what does that look like for them? Because if they don't, they're they're really not take, uh, uh, engaging in something that's likely to give them the outcomes they're they're looking for. And for me, you know, home run is if I can do five percent uh, of of. Uh, uh, if I can have a trade contribute 5% return against total capital. And I, I, never, I never measure a trade based on the percent gain of the underlying price. Uh, you, you see people do that, you know, or the margin, you know, the, I, I had a 300% return on the margin to hold a trade. That's nonsense. I, reward and gain should always be measured against total nominal capital. And for me, a home run is a trade in which I can do 5 to 10% return against my total capital. Or again, going back to a hypothetical million dollar of total capital, I can have a trade that returns $50,000 or sometimes every few years, $100,000. That for me is a home run. For some people, it may be, I want to double my money. I mean, a home run is a, is a 50% return against total capital. Um, so, some people think that way, although I think it, when you really dig into the mechanics of the risks that are involved to get a trade that's a 50% or um, the, the, you, you get into a situation where it does not take much to get into a 30% drawdown if you're wrong, and, and that's not a world I want to live in. Mm -hmm. yeah no that's fair and you've you mentioned i don't know if this relates to what we're sort of talking about now but there's a quote you said before i trade price change i don't trade price level how how is that related to sort of risk management is it related to risk management in some way um uh, indirectly i think it's related to risk management um uh, I mean, in in but only indirectly. Uh, I mean, I don't really care whether I'm buying, you know, uh, Apple computer or uh, I'll use a stock instead of futures. Although futures are really again, that's where I live. That's the markets I love. But I'll, I, you know, I'll, or, or I'll use I'll, I'll use a different market. I will use gold as an example. That's probably a market everybody probably connects a little bit with. 
you know, I I trade I tr I trade price action, not price level. I don't care whether a buy signal in gold comes in at eighteen hundred and fifty bucks or two thousand and fifty bucks. I, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, I'm looking for something that I think okay this. Uh, this is giving me uh, a read on on timing. Uh, all of a sudden, the market is set up where I think I can be more precise with the timing of a trade and be more precise in determining the level at which I'm going to be wrong, at least on my timing. And, you know, again, I don't care in gold that comes in at $1,900 or $2,100. Uh, and so it doesn't bother me to buy, you know, if somebody tells me gold sitting at $1,890 right now, and Peter, you're going to get a buy signal sometime in the next year at $2,100. I'm not about to run out and buy gold now. I'm going to wait for that buy signal. Uh, and, and so I, I think that's just a way to think about price that all we're changing, well, we trade price change. You know, I, th I think that's a trap that people start thinking about the price level at which they're in. That we trade price change. That's all we trade. I don't get to, I'm not trading gold. I'm trading the price change of gold. I'm not trading Apple computer. I'm, cha I'm trading the price change of Apple computer. I'm not trading Bitcoin. I'm trading the price change of Bitcoin. And so you have to think in terms of what, what are you really trading? And you're trading the price axis that's either on the right side of your chart or the left side of your chart. That's where you're speculating, not on the name that's at the top of the chart. Yeah, interesting. You also mentioned, uh, so I've got a lot of quotes here that are very interesting, so it's interesting to dig into them. Um, you said, stop being obsessed with catching tops and bottoms and become willing to accept large chunks in the middle, which I think is a really um, good principle to sort of run by. And, I was just wondering, what do you look for to sort of confirm trends that have gone past that beginning or finishing stage? Is there certain things you use in your, your charting techniques? Um, certain things to say it's time for me to be engaged or certain things. Exactly. So you're, you're sort of avoiding yeah. catching the top or, or the bottom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and I think, I, I mean, I'll just touch on that. I, th I think a lot of people are obsessed with they want they want to catch the bottom. They want to catch the top. I, I think that's a that's like a dog chasing its tail. It's never going to catch it. And and uh, and so again, if I'm looking at gold and golds at nineteen hundred dollars, and uh, I believe sometime in the next year to two years, gold is going to go to three thousand dollars. I I don't need to catch gold from eighteen ninety to three thousand. If I can find some comfortable places in the middle where I can pick up three, four hundred dollars with a measured risk, that's acceptable to me. Uh, I, I, I can I can live with that. Or uh, I know that you know at least kind of the generation, two generations behind me, you know, Bitcoin and crypto is 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 a is a big asset class to them. You know they're looking at Bitcoin, and you know Bitcoin's at you know ten thousand six hundred and fifty dollars as we speak. People are talking about Bitcoin going to twenty thousand, fifty thousand, a hundred thousand dollars. 
I don't need to uh, catch whatever the low is uh, of Bitcoin here and ride it. I, if, if Bitcoin is going to go up $90,000 a Bitcoin, I'll be really, really happy if I can, if I can pick up 30 or 40 of it. Um, you know, that, that will make my year or two. Uh, and so I don't really want to be obsessed with think I need to catch the bottom of Bitcoin and then I need to catch whatever the top is. I just, if Bitcoin's going to have a big move, uh, that's great and I'll monitor it and hopefully uh, I, can, I can pick up some change in, in the middle. Uh, and I think, frankly, it's change that comes in the middle, which is the easiest money to grab. It's 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 tough. Picking bottoms and tops, I think, are 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 tough because when you think about it, during the course of a year, in a year's time, there's only one price tick that's the top, and only one price tick's the bottom. Um, but there's a lot of price ticks in the middle. That's very true. It reminds me of something. I don't know if you know uh, the trader Brian Shannon. But he, 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 Oh yeah, Brian. I know real well. As a matter of fact, I, when I lived in Colorado, Brian and I would try to have breakfast together really? uh, in Denver. Uh, yeah, once uh, once a year we would try to uh, get together. I don't live in Colorado anymore, so I don't see Brian. But it's a person that who I used to see at least once a year. Yeah, and he always he always used to. In fact, he mentioned on the podcast. We've had him on the podcast. Uh, trade your time frame. That sort of remind you know when you're talking about that Bitcoin, the longer term trend, and not get too drawn into the shorter term sort of price movements. If that's not the trade you're playing, yep, I I think there's great there's great wisdom in in that you know if you're a longer term trader or if you're you know if you're a shorter term trader, you're a swing trader, and everybody has different you know if. If you ask 10 people, give me the time frame for a successful or an unsuccessful trade for a swing trader, a scalper, or a position trader, 10 people are going to all have different time frames for what that looks like. And so to tell you, to say I'm a position trader or a swing trader actually doesn't mean anything. And, and I think that's a, a, a good lesson for uh, your listeners is when if somebody were to say to them i'm a, a swing trader they ought to ask well define that for me what does that look like how long are you holding your winners and how long are you holding your losers uh, uh and, and let that define uh time frame more precisely or ask people whether they're getting signals from weekly charts or daily charts if they're chartists or uh, or six-hour charts, or four-hour charts, or five-minute charts, is let those things become defined more precisely because I think it, uh, it you know, it, otherwise it's too granular. Is yeah, is is let it become defined so it's more understandable and relatable. Yeah, very good, very true. Um, I was wondering now if we could talk about uh, silver. It's something you've commented on recently. Um, Silver is obviously in a, in a longer term sort of bull market at the moment. Um, currently around sort of 2,100 to 2,450 range. Um, it's had a, a big rally this year from the lows and, and a, almost a 50% pullback uh, from the start of this year's move, um, which started around 1,100. What's your, what, what are the charts saying to you at the moment for silver? I mean, you could say, I mean... This has been an unusual year, and I think it's important. 
when people are trying to framing what you know this year's low is to realize this year's we, we, you know we had a three standard deviation event this year that affected all markets right uh, i mean this isn't a normal year and when you look at sometimes highs or lows for a market this year i think you have to uh, identify those uh, in terms of price uh, uh, levels with a big grain of salt, right? Um, so yeah, we saw silver uh, get down to you know eleven sixty, eleven seventy this year, but really, did it really go there? I mean, that was in the midst of major panel, you know. And so I think for me, I, I define what happened as silver as an out of line movement. It, it just it was a low that you can ignore. You just put it out of your mind. Uh, similar to crude oil, right? Yeah, crude oil negative. in expiration goes to minus, yeah, minus $45 a barrel. That, that's not a low. Uh, I mean, really. And so the whole idea that you start developing Elliott wave counts and Fibonacci ratios based on a, a three deviation event, I, I don't think is reasonable. So I, I look at go, at silver, and you know, really, I look at silver over a period that goes back to September 2014, and you know, I look at it and consider you know 1350, 1360 to be the low, and you know 2100 to be the high. So we have a huge base in silver. There's just a gigantic base in silver, and it has not participated by and large with the gold move. The gold has been by far the leader. And uh, not that I'm not constructive on gold. I am constructive on gold. But I think silver has a lot of catching up to do. And, you know, silver, gold's been in a bull market since really April, May of, of last year, where silver has really been in a bull market since July of 2020. Uh, and, you know, this is a very infant bull market. And, you know, we're only four months into it, you know, four months out of a six-year base. Uh, and so I, I, that's what attracts me to silver. But I realize silver is highly speculative, too. I, I mean, it's, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a real speculative market where gold is, is more of a, you know, a store of value market. But in any case, I like silver. And so, yeah, I, I, um, the question then is how, you know, how you own silver, right? I mean, how do you then express that, that idea? I think silver goes back to $50, we're heading back to $50 again. And so, you know, how does one, how does one express that? Uh, and so as I think of silver, you know, I, I think of silver right now, I think of it very different in different terms than I think of soybeans or corn or even gold or crude oil or uh, some of the currency pairs. Uh, I've, I'm right now kind of placing silver in a special little bucket. Yeah, okay. And are there any other uh, commodities? You mentioned U.S. grains is, is an interesting one to you now. That are showing interesting sort of setups at the moment. Yeah, I mean, again, keep in mind, I, I am I am a swing trader, and for me, I'll define that. That means for me, if I'm wrong in a trade, I'm probably out uh, by the end of the week. Um, and if I'm right on a trade and it becomes a home run trade, 
I'm probably in the trade anywhere from three weeks to two months. And so that's my time frame. Okay. So uh, when I think of silver, I'm thinking of a much longer time frame trade. You know, in, in the case of silver, you know, I'm thinking, uh, wow, this is, yeah, this is a substantially longer time frame. I'm thinking in terms of years. And so, um, yeah, most other markets that I look at, I'm, I'm, I look at them as a swing trader, which means I'm saying, okay, in any given market, I'm likely to have two, three, maybe four nice, well-defined trading opportunities in this market in the next 12 months. And so uh, that's, that's always then uh, how I'm always looking at markets. But there are some markets where I believe it may not be expressed in, in, my, tra in my portfolio, but I believe that they are set up for substantially longer-term trends that I need to be aware of. And I, one of those is grains. I mean, if you look at yeah, really even raw materials, you look at raw materials, the Bloomberg raw material index compared to uh, the, the S&Ps or, or the NASDAQ, you know, we're at lows we haven't seen, relative lows we haven't seen since the 1930s, since the Depression, where, you know, uh, we're, we're just, we're at unbelievable levels. And so, um, they're very undervalued. Real items, real commodities are very undervalued in relationship to equity prices, real estate prices, and so forth. And so we're, we're in depression levels, like stocks were in the 1930s. We're in depression levels. We have to be aware of that. So I, that kind of points me in a direction to say I'm going to pay a special attention to any buy signals that I get uh, in markets like silver and markets like sugar and markets like corn or wheat. Uh, and similarly, then there are some times when I will operate with somewhat of a, I guess, a global macro narrative. I mean, hey, I'm not ignorant to what's going on in the world. And so uh, I may come up and say I kind of have a bias on a market based on what I think are global macro considerations. I mean, that's not normally, I mean, I don't normally migrate to try to find a global macro reason for a trade. I, I avoid that. But I look at, let's say, the British pound. I think Brexit is still an accident waiting to happen. Uh, and so I look at the euro pound and, and I say, wow, I, could we go to parity? You know, could we... Parity in, in the euro pound, which I think we could, and which, by the way, the charts support that idea. The monthly charts support the idea that the euro trades at even money to the pound. Uh, and so that then becomes kind of a driving, let's call it a chart narrative, right? Uh, it, it's backed by a belief in something else, but it's a chart narrative that I believe that the euro pound goes to, you know, goes to want. Um, and, and so that may drive me to try to find a position at which maybe I can hold on to that position for two, three months um, and take a bigger position and, and maybe even build the position a little bit more over time and not have it become just a pure swing trade. Yeah, sure. And do you, so when you're looking at these things, uh, 
because you mentioned Brexit. So there are some fundamental aspects that you incorporate into your thinking process. It's not purely the chart setups, etc. I mean, they're obviously heavily involved, but there are other factors you involve in, in your decision process. Um, indirectly, and like, yeah, this is this may leave some of your listeners what I'm about to say completely confused. Like, huh? What you know? What, what did he say? Huh? Um, you know, one one of those. I believe. I I just strongly, strongly, strongly believe that for any given market over over some little bit longer uh, uh, time frame, there are really only one or maybe two uh, fundamentals that drive it. There are, the, the news will come in on 100 different things. And, the, and market participants often don't really know what drives it until a, a, a mega move is over. Then they finally figure it out and it becomes clear in their minds. Uh, you give you a couple examples. I, I mean, I, I think a big example in the stock market, there's only one driver. It's the Federal Reserve. It's liquidity provided by the Federal Reserve. You forget about anything else. Somebody that, that back in March just said, I, there's only one thing that's going to drive the stock market, and that's liquidity driven by the Federal Reserve. He doesn't have to understand necessarily the details of what that is, he just has to, you just have to know there is a driver, there is a dominant factor that is going to drive the price of a market. And I don't need to understand that completely, but I need to recognize that that is true. And uh, I think that will stay, you know, uh, in a lot of trouble. I, I think those people are trying to understand markets based on fundamentals. You know, they're trying to put this big narrative of complicated things together and I've got, we've got a fire alert going on. You may hear the, the, every month all communities test their emergency warnings. Yeah. Um, and we've got that going on in YZ of Minnesota right now. Um, or, or another example was the crash in the stock market in 2007, 2008. It was driven by mortgage derivatives. It, that was the dominant factor. It was mortgage derivatives. And so, you know, just I didn't need to understand that. I just needed to know there's something driving this market that's going to drive it. And chances are that CNBC uh, or Bloomberg are not going to report on that today or may not report on it this week. They'll, they may touch on it along with all kinds of other things, but they not re may not recognize this is the driver. And so um, to that degree, I say, yeah, I'm a fundamentalist. Not that I need to know, but I need to know, I need to have an idea that if a market's going to have a big, big trend, that's a very profitable trend, it's going to be driven, it's going to be driven by something. And I don't even understand what that something is. I do need to, to recognize that it will be driven by something. Yeah, that's very interesting. And um, you've previously talked about corruptible US dollars. Am I right in saying that's related to the Fed being, you know, influencing, you could say, the stock markets like we were talking about just now, um, particularly in recent times? Is, can you explain that in more detail? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think you look at any fiat currency. I, it, it doesn't matter which one it is. I mean, it's it's actually more true for the British pound probably than it is uh, true for the U.S. dollar. But it's certainly true for all currencies. You look at the Turkish lira. You look at Brazilian real. Whatever the case may be, is the buying power of that fiat currency today is not what it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago, and it's not what it's going to be 30 years from now. And so, you know, you go 100 miles outside of London and you say, okay, I can buy, you know, a two-bedroom flat for, you know, X number of, uh, of, of sterling. The chances are 30 years from now, you know, 30 years ago, it was a lot less. 30 years from now, it's going to be a lot more. And that's what's happening is the purchasing power of fiat currencies uh, erode over time and will continue to erode over time. And, uh, you know, anybody who is largely positioned in fiat currencies, such as a trading operation, trading operations such as mine, are heavily long the home currency. It's just the reality because you have money sitting in in, in accounts, right? Uh, you know, our trading capital is not sitting in, in the form of a flat in downtown Chicago uh, or in a gold mine or, you know, by owning, uh, you know, a thousand acres of corn, uh, corn and soybean land in southern Minnesota. It, it's sitting in fiats. And so I have that fiat risk. And so it's not, you know, it's almost like I'm not as worried about a losing trade uh, and losing that, that fiat as I'm worried about that fiat losing purchasing power ability. Uh, and so that's kind of what I mean by that when I refer to the depreciating value of a fiat. Yeah. And how, how do you, are you a believer in cryptocurrencies and, and the future of them? Is that something? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I know some really sharp people, particularly in the Bitcoin and Ethereum world who have, a, uh, who are miners. They, they know, they know that world. It's the world they live in. And, you know, they've been very persuasive in talking to me and helping me understand why they believe there's uh, a, the long-term case uh, for Bitcoin. And it's actually quite persuasive, I think. Yeah. But I'm mixed on it. I, I, I you know, I sometimes wonder, you know, I, and so I, I'm kind of operating on the premise that I think there's a 50% chance that Bitcoin goes to 100,000 or name your price, right? 100,000, 250,000, whatever the price is, that there's a 50% chance of that. And there's a 50% chance it goes down in the history in the archives of Beanie Babies and Pet Rocks. Yeah. And so uh, I, and I, I invest in it accordingly. I trade it accordingly. Because I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's, they've proven themselves. They've proven themselves to be very good markets for speculation. But have they, pro and they they've proven themselves, obviously, by appreciating substantially over the last, you know, 10 years. Yeah. Uh, really over the last six years. I mean, tremendous appreciation. 
but they have they proven themselves to be a store of value and have they proven themselves to be a, fo of, a, a form of a currency, a form of settling international commerce, uh, of transferring wealth uh, in, a, in a liquid way, um, is what currencies are, right? And so I think that, frankly, even the maximalists, while they'll talk about all kinds of fancy jargon, I think if they're honest with themselves, they have to come to the conclusion that, hey, uh, look around, find me uh, a FTSE corporation, a Fortune 500 uh, corporation, an S&P 500 corporation, uh, uh, a Nikai, Japanese Nikai corporation, who on their annual reports has a line item reflecting the value of their holdings in Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency, there are none. That those don't exist. Now, people say to me, well, goodness sakes, I, I used Bitcoin to buy a pair of tennis shoes 10 years ago. You know, you, yeah, you can use it to buy stuff. You can buy pizzas with it. You know, you can buy things. Certainly, you can buy things. And that, that's an overstatement. I, and I'm not, not trying to, uh, you know, minimize the fact that the, the, they can be used today for settling transactions that they, uh, in, in the real world but not in a big league. I don't see any massive uh, oil export be business being done in, in a cryptocurrency. Um, th th that world doesn't, doesn't exist. And so we cannot make the statement that, that Bitcoin or any other currency is being used on, on the, at the same level as, as any other currencies uh, for the purpose of settling global commercial transactions. doesn't exist. Now, is it a store of value? Yeah, maybe. Might it become a form of currency exchange or part of a currency mechanism? Uh, I mean, you know, 50 years from now, if, the, the, if we end up with some sort of special drawing rights, is the currency of the world, uh, and it, it's comprised uh, of some formula which includes gold and crude oil and solar power and water rights and uh, U.S. dollars and euro currency and Bitcoin and all of that. Yeah, possibly. Uh, but will Bitcoin be the currency of the world? There is no indication of that. And so I'm guarded. I, I've heard the arguments for, the, for, for Bitcoin they're very believable. They're very legitimate. Uh, they're well spoken by well thought people, uh, and so I'm 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 aware of that, and and so I'm guarded. I am a guarded bull on Bitcoin, and it's on Bitcoin and Ether. I can't buy the the, the altcoin yeah. story. No, it's definitely a very interesting market. It'd be well for one. I'm, I'm personally following very closely, um, but it it'd probably take quite some time to play out i imagine um i just wanted to wrap up the uh interview with a what we call a, just a quick fire round there's a, it's a few questions um only like looking for, for short answers basically uh it's just something we do at the end of of the podcast is that good for you peter yeah yeah go for it absolutely the first question is what's your edge your trading edge what would you consider that to be uh, persistence, discipline, patience, being detached. So human psychology sort of area, basically. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And what is a, a top tip for 
for newbie traders, if you had something to pass along? Get your expectations right. In terms of well, what you expect. Uh, you expect to take a thousand dollars to a million dollars in the next two years. You don't have proper expectations. You have to have expectations, which are real world. Yeah. And that can help guide you. Uh, have you got a favorite book? It doesn't have to be to do with trading. Just interested in something you like. Um, I, well, even in terms of trading, I, I love Jack Schweigert's Market Wizards book because it, uh, you know, it just, uh, the series, because I, I think it just it presents, I think, top line thinking of very, very smart people. And it's not a how-to book. It doesn't tell you what to buy and when. It, tells, it, it shares how some very successful traders think. And to that degree, it's, it's yeah. wonderful education. Do you, who do you go to for market insights, if anyone? Uh, really, really nobody. Um, yeah, uh, I go to the charts, and that follows on quite nicely to my next question. Favorite charting software? Is there something that you like to use a lot? Yeah, I you know I've used it for a long time, so part part of it is what I'm used to. But I I used uh, Trade Navigator by Genesis Financial. Yeah, uh, they're a US they're a US company, and I uh, it's it just it's a, I mean Bloomberg is awesome. Uh, too, but uh, uh, Trade Navigator is just that's a software I've used for years for charting, for order entry, for you know, for, for the A to Z in, in my trading. Use it for everything. And finally, a top tip to keep calm in stressful situations um, realize there are, you know, do you, do you trade to live or do you live to trade? Um, I, I think it's important to trade to live, not to live to trade. There are other things in life. I, I mean, trading is, you know, it's captivating, but it's a, it, the reality is that's not real world either. And I mean, there's a, there's a whole real world out there and it involves other people and, in, in real life. And we can't, we can't lose, we can't lose uh, the, the sense that our entire world is on, the, uh, is, is on a chart on a screen with prices blinking. Yeah. I completely agree with that. Very easy to, like we were talking about earlier, to get sort of addicted to it because the addictive nature of the markets, I suppose. Um, oh, it is. yeah. But yeah, thank you so much, Peter. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. You bet, Ed. And hopefully it'll be, hopefully it'll be beneficial for you. you. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, do you have anything uh, you'd like to leave with for the audience or at least... Um, where they can find you to get, you know, follow you. And well, I'm on, I'm on Twitter at Peter L. Brandt. Um, and so, you know, uh, and I chime in about all kinds of things and um, in charts. And so they can, I think that's a good place to at least start uh, is uh, they can join the herd on at Peter L. Brandt and let's you know, see if they like what they, what they see. So, Anyway, I think that's about it. Thanks, Peter. Uh, really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest to you. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. 
We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new podcasts, stock reports, or events from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. Until next time.